Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are looking at the theme of pride in Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. So to start us off, we have a quote, and this quote comes from the first episode of the fourth season of Legend of Korra. It's when Kuvera is going around trying to basically coerce (laughs) different cities and towns into joining her empire. So this is her talking to a governor of the city of Yi. You have a lot of pride, but it cannot protect your people. Your pride will not stop the hordes as your city crumbles to the ground. And your pride will certainly not feed the hungry when all that is left is rubble. Yeah, I I don't imagine pride would do those things. No, no, it would not. But uh, it's also, I think, shows the the pride that Kuvira has that she thinks that she can do that instead. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I also think it's a smart coercive move on her Mm. part because she's saying like because of your pride all these people are gonna suffer Mm -hmm. and it's not because of your principles it's because of your pride and i don't know if this governor it was because of his pride you know that he didn't want to join her and so i think it's talking about something in a way that will make the person feel cornered into certain actions because if they don't do it that means like i'm being terrible to all these people versus Mm. looking at what's actually taking place yeah it's a manipulative way of forcing the action in a way that makes the person feel like it's the right choice Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and i think that it also is illustrative of kind of this nebulous place that pride exists where Unlike a lot of the other themes and qualities that we talk about, it is not really seen wholly in a positive or negative light. The two kind of coexist where, you know, Mm. being proud of your community and proud of your self-reliance can be a good thing. But she's also clearly showing how pride can lead to fall. Pride can lead to overconfidence and arrogance and these other types of things. And I think that Mm -hmm. pride in the way that it's used in just conversation and, and society tends to really live in that nuance a lot more than a lot of these other themes and traits that we talk about, where it really flirts between being seen in a positive and negative light. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's so interesting for me because whenever I think of the word pride, my automatic reaction is to think of it in a negative light because I grew up in a Christian background and Pride is one of the the most talked about, quote unquote, sins. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because my mind always still goes back to that, like back to those roots, rather than thinking in all of the different ways. I'm progressive or a part of a queer community (laughs) or something like my mind doesn't automatically go there. It goes back to like what I first learned. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's really been more in the last decade I've thought of pride having anything positive to offer. So yeah, it it is very interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure that that dynamic is going to come out a lot in our conversation tonight. So why don't (laughs) don't we get into that? What, What character did you bring to talk about pride? 
So I decided that we should talk about Admiral Zhao. Oh, okay, that's great. There's so few reasons to ever talk about him, but <laughs> this is the good one. And it's interesting that in the whole first season, I mean, Zuko is like this kind of annoying, melodramatic teenager, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's like sort of a villain, but like not exactly because, again, he's it's hard to take him totally seriously. And so Admiral Zhao is the main antagonist of the first season and I just I think it's interesting because he often comes to a head with Zuko throughout the season who both team Avatar would consider as antagonists. Mm. I think especially when you put juxtapose him to Zuko you really see his pride come out because of the ways in which he interacts with a kid like he interacts with Zuko, who is still a prince, sure, an exile prince, but still a prince who's like Mm -hmm. the kid of your boss, essentially. The leader of the empire, I guess, probably would be the term he would prefer. But he is still so just mean and like taunting and annoying and everything to this kid who's already lost so much, you know? Mm -hmm. So we get to see him start to interact with Zuko because he basically is saying that capturing the Avatar is too important a task to entrust to this teenager. And so it's like, I'm gonna like try and capture the Avatar myself, which is not according to what the Fire Lord had even initially said. He tasked Zuko with that because it was unattainable. Mm-hmm. because obviously Fire Lord Oze is the worst. But <laughs> Admiral Zhao decides like, no, I should do this because the Avatar was actually sighted or there's rumors and, and these things. And and then one of uh, uh, a colonel, Colonel Shinu, has said to Admiral Zhao, or before he was even an admiral, before he was promoted. He's just you know, regular guy Zhao. <laughs> no, I think he was... He was under Colonel Shino at the time, so I don't know what uh, ranks, whatever. Captain I don't, Zhao. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Something. <laughs> <laughs> and so Colonel Shinu said, "This is nothing more than a vanity project for you," which I think is exactly right. Mm. You know, even though somebody else has been tasked with doing this, there's other things to be doing. But he's like, "No, I'm gonna catch the Avatar." So I think that so much of that just goes back to pride for him. And he's also so arrogant going into the Agni Kai with Zuko. Then he also can't deal with it when Zuko beats him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he tries to attack Zuko when his back's turned, which is just also ridiculous. Because again, this is like a 14 a year old yeah. or <laughs> maybe 15, 15 at, that time, at the but point. Yeah, yeah, still, yeah. still young. Yeah, and it's just ridiculous. And then, of course, oh yeah, he decided that he's just going to kill a moon spirit. Or not even a, but the moon spirit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's only one. And he's just like, I'm going to get rid of this. You know, he's just so prideful that he doesn't even care about trying to understand more about the balance between the moon spirit and like the ocean spirit how that affects the entire world like he just thinks i know best and 
I'm above all of the consequences of any of these actions. And somehow the Fire Nation is like so supreme that it's going to be unaffected by this. <laughs> and so I think he also shows so much pride there. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, in the very end of, of the first season, Amojal dies slash was sent to the Fog of Lost Souls, we find out later in Legend of Korra. And that happens, I mean, obviously not only because he had killed the moon spirit and whatnot, but also a big part is just because he was too prideful to take Zuko's outstretched hand to save mm. him. If he had taken his hand, it would have meant accepting help from this person that he's been antagonistic to, this person that he thinks he's better than, and it also would mean that he has to deal with losing and deal with actually the consequences of his actions. And, you know, he was too prideful to do that. So, yeah, pride was definitely Zhao's downfall yeah. or part of it. So, yeah, I thought I thought he was an interesting character to look at for the theme. Totally. Yeah, he's a great character to look at. And, and he's, he's really interesting because he is, in many ways, the main antagonist of the first season. Mm -hmm. Zuko is a constant threat, but he is shown to have his own agenda when he takes on the, the guise of the Blue Spirit and he goes against the Fire Nation. Mm -hmm. And so while Ozai is literally unpictured, we don't even know what his face looks like, <laughs> yeah. Zhao really becomes the face of the Fire Nation. And it's such a good character work because he could have been a very bland character who's just kind of showing military bureaucratic power but he's also showing that he does have this vanity he has this pride where he exists within the system and he probably has been uh he's, he's benefited from that pride and in that system and that it, it actually you know helps people who have that kind of mentality and ambition mm -hmm. so yeah i think that he's great as a way to kind of bring us in in this first season into what the fire nation is as a threat because it is this hulking behemoth most of the soldiers are masked the same like way stormtroopers are they have little personality but mm -hmm. this character who is emblematic of it is showing elements that are true of the series of the fire nation's military culture as a whole which is these pride this ambition these other kinds of things but in a way that is self-defeating and is not, uh, certainly not communal the way that the air nomads are as a great, great counterexample, where mm -hmm. it's all about what's good for society. It's so much more kind of individualistic, but in a way that is uh, hierarchical in a really problematic way. And yeah, I just think that, that, that he's a great example of pride and such a cool way of introducing the Fire Nation to the series. Absolutely, and I think it's it's great that, like, yes, he is distinct from Ozai, and when you actually get to see Ozai more, you can see some differences in their character, but also he has some similar traits as Ozai as well, so it's like introducing you to some of the thing for the higher-up people in the Fire Nation, some of the characteristics, without introducing you to Ozai yet, and, you know, it could make sense why... Ozai would even, you know, promote him and keep him around. I mean, he's used to mm -hmm. the same traits that he has himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I would just love to be in the Fire Nation. It sounds like a great, 
<laughs> great place to be in the fire nation military. the military structure mm-hmm. in particular yeah mm-hmm. you would you would do great in it would all go over so well <laughs> <laughs> but uh what plot do you have for me today when i was thinking about pride in in these series i i, I started kind of thinking a lot about how people kind of build their own visions of themselves and and being proud of themselves and how much throughout the series we see that being really affected by the way they perceive or desire the pride of their parents or their parent figures. Hmm. Zuko and Azula are a great example of this, but we've talked about them a whole lot and it's pretty self-explanatory that that's pretty clear to both of their, their arcs. But I think it's actually clear for a lot of other other characters too. You know, Sokka, his desire to you know make his dad proud and 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 worries about his strategies messing up and things like that and people just being disappointed in him i think is is a really good example but i think that the the cora examples when we see the the children of the original boomerang squad that is a really (laughs) interesting place too because you know ang and katara's kids they have a whole two episode arc about what it was like for them to grow up under ang uh and not all of them being airbenders and how Tenzin always felt that pride and the other two didn't. I think that's really interesting because they are all trying to make their dad proud in these different ways, and it all kind of comes down to these things that they'd had no control about. Yet Tenzin, who is the airbender, he starts to go through his own journey of as a father, dealing with how to be proud about his children. And letting his own pride get out of the way of that. With everything with Janora and her figuring out all these things about the spirit world and, and, and all those kind of elements just more naturally in ways that he's never been able to through his, his work over decades. It takes him time to be proud of her rather than worried about that he's not living up to his dad's possible expectations or whatever it, it might be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that with characters as larger than life as the Avatar and Katara and these other characters, it can can be very hard. Um, And that's especially probably true for Toph's kids Um, because Toph isn't really the kind of person who would very often tell her kids that she's proud of them or anyone anything nice at all. (laughs) Uh, So we see that Lynn, you know, she takes up the, the mantle of police chief basically to follow in her mom's footsteps. You know, you see that she has a kind of cold demeanor and that she has a lot of pent up frustration with her her childhood and with her mom, yet so much of her identity is packed around the way that her mom lived her life. And yeah, I just I think it's interesting that the many of these characters who are all so different, they have all in many profound ways been affected in their choices by the desire to make their parents proud and that's not something that from, I think from the parents' perspective, other than Tenzin's journey, we tend to see that be fairly natural, where of course your dad or your mom or your uncle or whatever would be proud of you, but from the, the child or, or, or younger person's perspective, it is a pretty frequent 
source of anxiety, I think, for the characters in these series. And I just think that that's, that's very interesting because when we talk about pride as something that, you know, maybe you hold about yourself in, in a positive sense, you're proud of what you've done with your life. And these characters who have, I think Boomy has a quote where he talks about how he's tried to keep the world safe even though he's not an airbender. And the the things that people try to do and the way that they, they look at the decisions they've made and what they've their effects on the world, what they, whether they can or cannot be proud of that, I think are, yeah, really just... Uh, highly affected by what they project on uh, on their parents. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very interesting to see how it'd be very difficult to be Aang and be like, well, we need someone to be airbenders, you know? Like, mm-hmm. we need this. Or else, who even knows if the Avatar will be able to relearn this, you know, mm. uh, the next one. So it'd be very difficult to not instill that pride in while you're instilling culture in that way. But then it's also so interesting to see that because of how late Katara in some ways came to really excel in waterbending, you know, the first scene of the entire show is her and Sokka out fishing and her trying to do certain things and not going so well Mm -hmm. and so it's mostly a nuisance for him and like how that would affect how they perceived their parents interacting with them versus if she had been able to learn since the earliest age she ever showed any propensity for water bending and how that would affect how Sokka would feel even more so because obviously he starts getting quite self-conscious once he's with Team Avatar and all of them are Mm. benders and he's the one that's not. Yeah, it's just interesting to see when certain things start affecting them as characters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then obviously for Zuko to realize that the only person he really needs to be proud of him, or that he really wants to be proud of him, is his uncle. Yeah, and that's one thing that that actually preparing for this episode, I kind of got more than I had really ever seen in the past when looking at those episodes where he has these field trips with characters and things like that, where uh, <laughs> multiple characters tell him that Iroh would be proud of him, and he talks about that anxiety that he thinks he let Iroh down. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's... Uh, also, yeah, really, really clear and interesting. And it's nice that that's kind of their their support process of, of kind of supporting each other is giving Zuko that kind of moral, moral support. Yeah, yeah. But why don't we move into our compelling questions? What's your question for me? So my question for you is where do you see pride and bending influence each other in the shows? Interesting question. It's my intent. <laughs> you already touched on how Sokka feels insecure as part of Team Avatar because he's a non-bender. Mm-hmm. I think that there's definitely some element there where a, an insecurity that can come with being around people who have these other kinds of, of capabilities. And then obviously Boomy has that too, as we discussed, where mm-hmm. the fact that he wasn't an an airbender until season three of Korra (laughs) and and Tenzin and Kaya kind of berate him a little bit because he can't 
act in certain ways because he doesn't have bending to fall back on the way that they do. He's also just a bit ridiculous, too. Bo- both are true, yeah. And, and I, I, w- I wonder how much of that was intentional, of mm-hmm. that was him putting on an air of pride and confidence and, and arrogance and ridiculousness. I gotta stand to... out in some way. Exactly. And, and to own his standing, to own this idea that he isn't less than, that he's sh- not showing insecurity, but instead he is showing that, look at all the things that I can do and these amazing stories that I'm telling about what I've done as an admiral and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that that's, that's an interesting component too. I think one element is how Katara deals with Paku in the Northern Water Tribe. Mm-hmm. Really how that culture kind of maintains this gender hierarchy and so much of that is clearly based off of just Paku's pride and his his desire to maintain these conservative ways because everyone else seems to be perfectly fine with him taking on female apprentices. It really seems like it's just down to him and what he will or will not do. And that is... Uh, problematic in many ways not only the the rampant sexism but the idea that in any community one person can have that much power where their pride will affect the community at large definitely and also how foolish it is too just Mm. from a strategic military standpoint like there is a war going on shouldn't you be training anyone to waterbend who has the ability yeah, it just it doesn't make sense not to train them in combat with with their skills. So mm-hmm. that's also like, oh, well, it's been a hundred years and they haven't breached our ice walls, you know. <laughs> mm, yeah, maybe you should rethink that a bit. Yeah, that's so interesting because it's it's almost like in the military perspective, both sides are proud based off of ongoing war. Like, the Fire Nation is proud because they believe that they sh- they are the most powerful nation in the world and that they should continue to conquer. The Northern Water Tribe is proud that they've been able to last this long. So you could say the same thing with Bossing Say, that the walls of Bossing Say have never been torn down or they've never been breached. That's and because there is no war. <laughs> that's also true. But it's interesting how both sides of a 100-year-long war can use that war to build a kind of civic and military pride, which seems counterintuitive. You'd think that one side would be able to be proud and the other would not. Or neither side should be proud because they've been at war for 100 years. Um, (laughs) I mean, that one is definitely the one that should be. (laughs) But here, both sides are exhibiting a a kind of pride here in their their military capabilities, at least. And, And... yeah, I'm that is so that's a really proud interesting way. that the rest of the world is suffering while we stay in our little ice palace, you know. Mm-hmm. Or I'm so proud that it's been a hundred years and we still haven't subdued the whole world. It's like, come on, Fire Nation. You haven't done that well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What what else were you thinking of though for this question? Yeah, so I was thinking about Azula. She has a lot of pride in her abilities because they are extraordinary. But her reliance on her ability has allowed her to be prideful and arrogant in certain Mm. ways that actually make her more vulnerable. 
uh, you know, obviously we first see that when she gets betrayed by Mai and Tai Lee. Then we also see that when Zuko does show up in the last couple episodes and challenges her to Agni Kai, and she was just not in the right headspace for that. Mm -hmm. But she has so much pride in her abilities because when we're talking about abilities, she is a stronger bender than Zuko is. She is. She has more skill and talent, but she was not ready for that fight. Uh, she was not in a place for that. Not to mention bringing Katara into the fight. It was originally just between her and Zuko, but her pride and sadism made her aim at Katara instead, which then has Katara come in and frankly defeat her. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, and the, and the fact that, you know, people would be like, oh, well, if she hadn't have had mental health issues, then she would have beat Katara. But I'm like, Katara's also a bloodbender. So, you know, and I don't think that Azula would ever expect that, you know, because she mm-hmm. expects to be the best bender in any space she's in. And usually she is, mm-hmm. but... That's not always the case. Yeah it, yeah. it would also be very interesting to see just a, a one-to-one showdown between her and Toph as well. Because, mm. again, both Katara and Toph are extremely talented benders. I was also thinking about pride in, in more of that positive way that I don't normally think of. In terms of when they bring in, in Legend of Korra, when they bring in lava bending. Mm. It just being this new way to have pride in not just your one type of bending, but it's coming from someone who has both earth bending and fire bending in their families, right? Mm. And so it's just a way of kind of opening up that pride to encompass more things instead of just be so solely focused on on one type of bending and when you know the cultural aspects that go along with that mm-hmm. which i thought is really interesting and i was also thinking about how it's so fascinating too how you have avatar kyoshi and then you have kyoshi warriors and the mm. kyoshi warriors don't actually use bending but they have so much pride in kyoshi and i think that's that's so interesting for this pride, this intense pride to be carried through in a way that is so much more cultural and about who this person was and the community now that our island is. And yeah, it's just, I think it's really cool to see that they're able to have a pride in a way that you know, the Kyoshores don't seem like they have any insecurities about how awesome they are, you know? Mm-hmm. And they can have full pride in participating in this tradition. And I, I don't know, I haven't read the, the Kyoshi book, but it would be fascinating to find out if Kyoshi started those warriors and, like, to teach them, and it didn't matter if you were a bender or not which would just be a really cool thing. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I, I hear, hear those books are great, and I definitely would love to, to read them at, at some point 
Yeah, totally. Uh, another one that came to my mind was you mentioned Toph, and I was just like, yeah, Toph's pretty proud too. Uh, always talking about how she's the <laughs> yes. greatest Earthbender in the world, and and yep. I'm like, was that pride or determination or both? Where she invented metal bending? How much of that came from? Her being like, people say this can't be done, but I'm tough and I'm going to do it. (laughs) Totally. How much of it was just her refusing to accept the circumstances that people were trying to put her in. But yeah, I think that that's Mm -hmm. definitely an interesting part of it there. And as you mentioned, she is just an extremely capable bender. So it it makes sense why you would be proud of that. But uh, she she definitely could dig it pretty far too. (laughs) Oh, totally. And I think also... Probably some of her pride also comes from her own very specific circumstances Mm. where she's blind and her bending is a way to function in the world in a a way that would be different than somebody who was not an earthbender and was also blind. And so I think as her parents were so protective over her, her being able to take care of herself and her being able to protect herself using her bending, I can imagine would would develop a different sort of pride. A pride mm. that's not just like Azula where it's like, yeah, I'm real good at this, but <laughs> I'm good at this and this makes me be able to live in the world in the way where I don't have to be where I can be more self-sufficient. Yeah. Which suits her personality. Totally. And it's a a kind of middle finger to those who would say that she shouldn't be able to live in the world fully because of her blindness. Which, yeah, I mean, that's totally tough too. Like, oh, really? You don't think I can do this? Um, (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, like, I think she has an incredible amount of pride in her status as the best earthbender Mm -hmm. in the world, which she very well may be. But I think that also contributes to the expectations that she places on her daughters right that negatively affect their relationship so it i think it's supposed to both a positive and you know has negative aspects for absolutely for tough yeah yeah and the last one that i was thinking about is i think being the avatar should un- undo those negative aspects of pride in in many ways, right? Because you only have your impressive abilities because of those who came before you mm. and and also because of the spirit Rava. So you, you can never, as the avatar, be like, I earned this myself, right? I worked really hard and that's why I have these abilities. Like that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's always the case. I mean, obviously people have to come to understand and accept those things because I think in some ways... Cora starts out with some pride. We meet her and she's like this little toddler and it's like, I'm the Avatar, I deal with it, you know? <laughs> like bending multiple things, but then she has such a hard time with airbending and she, she just struggles with it so much and she gets so frustrated. She's almost like, well, I don't even necessarily need it. I can't do airbending, but I'm going to go face Amon, you know? Mm-hmm. And she thinks that without that other piece, she's still fine which doesn't work out great for her and she learns from that which is good but yeah it's just the avatar is interesting because it's so unique in how it's structured that it's almost like not individualistic pride in their own bending abilities but would be more like a, a pride in your ancestors if you're gonna have the pride at all 
Yeah, yeah. But what question do you have for me? Well, as we've we've talked about already with a, a few of the characters, I just think that so many of the characters in Avatar, and particularly the villains, are so interesting and, and well thought out. So I was wondering, which of the villains do you see as being the most or least prideful? Hmm... That's a good question because there there's a lot of pride to go around in terms there of the is, villains. And that tends to be a, a villainous characteristic uh, yeah. in a lot of series. Um, but I think that it, it, there's interesting kind of dynamics at play with some of the villains too. Yeah. My first instinct is to say that it would be Ozai because we, we spent a little more time with him mm-hmm. um, yeah, we can completely destroy all of the crops and everything of the Earth Kingdom and, like, <laughs> I'll rise from the ashes and be the Phoenix King, you know? Like, it's just, like, calling yourself the Phoenix King. You have to give yourself a title above Fire Lord. Like, it just sounds like the most prideful thing I've ever heard in my life. Is it Phoenix um, King or Phoenix Emperor? It's the King, yeah. Okay. Still. Basically, just because it sounds a little better, but, like, yeah. it is an emperor, essentially. <laughs> so, yeah. And then he's also just like, oh, you're the Avatar. You're a little boy. Like, it's fine. I'll be able to defeat you. Oh, wait. I'm my armor. Here's my shirtless body. We're going to fight. <laughs> like... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there is that. But then I think Sozin, I mean, he's the one who started this Mm. whole thing. And it was because he was so prideful in the Fire Nation. He's like, we have the best civilization and we should share this with the entire world by force, of course. (laughs) I mean, it it was that thinking that, that started this war. And and when this person that he had grown up with, Roku, had been best friends with for years, you know, when when he said, No, you can't do this and he semi defeat him. I mean, mm-hmm. he defeat him, but like not in a permanent way, he wouldn't accept that and he would just completely turned against him and again also thought that he could go up against the avatar <laughs> apparently that's a that's a family trait um, azulon was the only one we don't really know where he stood on that but every other one has tried to go up against the avatar mm-hmm. and so yeah i think like it's one thing to be born already into this war and be born into a royal family structure and this indoctrination that happens and you're taught that, and it's something different to be Sozin, the first one who's saying, like, this is what we should do. Mm. And so maybe Sozin actually, in the end, does have more pride than Ozai does. Then they also have to compete a bit with Unalak, because he is like, I'm going to create an avatar using the other spirit you know like Mm -hmm. the dark spirit and i'm gonna be the first one and i'll totally be able to control this you know and i'm just gonna like rip a a hole in in the world and you know two actually but yeah yeah exactly (laughs) yeah to just assume that you can control 
this spirit and to to even just be thinking that way if like i'm just gonna become my own avatar so that i can rule the world like that's that's the next level too the sozin mm-hmm. didn't even think of that <laughs> so yeah i don't know those are my my initial thoughts what are you thinking about uh yeah those are all really really good thoughts uh i was also thinking of azula as a really interesting character mm-hmm. um for a lot of the reasons that you you mentioned already but i think that one of the complications for her is how she defines herself as a monster which i think is really interesting because Mm -hmm. you know obviously being monstrous has a negative connotation to it and she doesn't say you think i'm a monster she says i am a monster like she accepts it and it's interesting like is she proud of something that is negative and that that she's using negative words for or is that an area where you know she's accepted and moved beyond any shame or anything it might come with uh, or at least most of it but yeah i just think that's an interesting element on ember island she talks about how her mother kind of always saw her as a monster and then she turns up she's like well i mean she was right uh and it's this great mm-hmm. comedic beat but during her her mental breakdown she sees her mother in her mind and even in that conversation her mom is telling her that she accepts her while azula is saying no i'm a monster and i I just think that that's a really interesting element of how much it it doesn't take away from azula's dedication into doing what she thinks is right which is ruling over anyone she can rule over but she so she doesn't question her decisions but she does i think have some interesting nuance there of of her self-image at least yeah definitely and then another villain I was thinking of who who I think is is an interesting element here is Zaheer because mm-hmm. his first thing that he does when he breaks out is he goes and he recruits his friends, which I think in part is because they're his friends, but it also shows that his, his first pl- element of his plan is to get help, which does not seem like the other villains in this series. Mm-hmm. None of them are about mm-hmm. getting help. It's about them choosing and and making decisions and maybe they got armies or other things to back it up but so often it's it's based off their own bending skills and these other things that they are really focusing on and here though he he literally is the first person to to just fly the way that he flies in in generations he doesn't have this pride about it he accepts it but he also turns to help where he comes. So he's an, he's a really interesting villain because he, he I think, doesn't show that same kind of pride that, that a character like Ozai might. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, he's still a villain, but he's, I think, much more open-minded, mm. more like Iroh in terms of thinking that there are things to be gained learning about other cultures or other ways of doing things and mm. which is a great benefit to him because even once he's finally imprisoned again he's able to to meditate and go into the spirit world and not be imprisoned in the same way anybody else would if if they hadn't practiced that you know i could never see the fire lord ever trying to do anything <laughs> like that you know yeah wow yeah you saying that kind of blew my mind because him You're as welcome. the the head of the red lotus and and iroh introducing mm. us to the white lotus mm-hmm. he really is in many ways a kind of dark reflection of iroh taking a lot of those those core characteristics of iroh 
and turning them on their head in this really diabolical way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we move on to our missed opportunities? Yeah. So for me, I was thinking about that there's just this really fine line between having pride in your culture and thinking your culture is better than others mm. and, you know, other cultures should be more like yours. And I think we do see that a bit in in the show with the Fire Nation. As I was talking about earlier, Sozin's like, yeah, we have all these great things in our culture and now let's, you know, make everybody else have them. But there's finer lines than that, you know? Mm. It's not just there's pride in your culture and then there's imperialism. <laughs> in just people's daily lives, it's not necessarily the scale that we're, we're looking at things, uh, daily interactions and, and perspectives mm. through. And so I just wish it was a little bit more fleshed out and like just a little more there in terms of showing the nuance between all of these different aspects of pride in, in your culture and, and what that means if your culture is in, in the majority or if you're have pride in bending but you're the one who has more power even if you're in the minority like benders are mm -hmm. and and what does it mean to have pride in your culture and bending as those things go hand in hand when your type of bending has been used to oppress people you know like what is pride in being a firebender in the post-colonial reality of the Avatar world. And if if you are in the majority or if your your group does have more power, like, does it always end up being an oppressive thing? Not necessarily on the global imperialism scale of oppressive, but still oppressive. And so, yeah, I just, I, I have questions about those things. So I really would have loved to see that addressed a bit more um, in the series, especially when, when you have something like the whole first series has this ethic about imperialism and, and, and mm -hmm. fighting that. But then when it gets into Korra, you have a bunch of different villains. There's a lot of interesting things that were done there. But then when we get to Kuvira and, and she's trying to do this empire again, it, it would have been cool to kind of see that be a little more nuanced and some of those questions to be raised or, or asked as well. Yeah, yeah, you you basically stole mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got to go first. <laughs> I was uh, I was thinking the same thing from our missed opportunity. How they don't explore those elements of of pride and especially kind of cultural or identity based pride, and those I think have become these more positive views of pride in, in our society. And so it, it's unfortunate that we don't really see much of that. I think particularly in the Republic City era, where we see the triple threats, a gang that is explicitly about having water, earth, and firebenders. And pro-bending is based entirely around having one of each of those kinds of benders. And mm -hmm. we kind of skip to the egalitarian ideal of everyone is here, everyone is represented, we're all equal, and we don't need to have this pride because I guess they, they haven't really experienced the same kind of marginalization that a lot of the pride movements that we've seen in our world create, where when you're a marginalized group within a society that claims to be egalitarian, that type of pride is really meaningful for 
your race, if you're LGBTQ, whatever else it might be. And mm-hmm. that's why there's a difference between people saying that they're, they have black pride and people saying they have white pride. <laughs> um, <laughs> Those are and... exactly the same thing, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was totally thinking about that one when you were talking because it's like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like you have pride against the the majority or the culture, whatever the oppressive forces are that are telling you not to, right? Mm-hmm. Telling you that exactly. you're less than, and so you have pride in in being what you are. But when there is nothing telling you being white is wrong, or there is nothing telling you being straight is wrong, you know, like having pride in it is just gross, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of Parks and Rec, the amazing episode with the, what was it, the, the male men or whatever. Something the like oh, quote-unquote yeah. men's rights group <laughs> leslie nope is just like you're ridiculous and men's rights are nothing you know yeah and it's like <laughs> exactly like that's exactly what came to mind when people not this past pride but the one before you know there was a big thing about people wanting to do straight pride or whatever and just like straight pride is nothing <laughs> like yeah because it is and- you have been the majority. You have never been persecuted for being straight. So what are you proud of? You know? Yeah. The, these these pride movements are acts of resistance against a marginalizing structure. Mm-hmm. And that's not what you're doing when you're saying that I'm proud to be whatever the the majority is or whatever in particular the privileged and oftentimes oppressive force is that pride is is not the same Mm -hmm. yeah and and so here in in the 70 year skip or whatever between series we skip over all these these nuances and these discussions and the ways that the building of republic city is is difficult and we just get to the point where almost everyone is kind of everyone in republic city is kind of divorced from their cultural or historical ties to their their nation or community or 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 bending and i think that the show loses some of that Uh, i I do know that uh, i haven't read all of them but even the first comics based after avatar the promise deal with those kinds of issues Mm -hmm. a lot better um and they're, they're written with the the staff of the show and so it makes sense but they they do this kind of exploration there in the comics in really really profound ways so i would recommend that to anyone who's a fan of avatar and has these similar questions yeah all, so many of our post-colonial questions like at least some of those are answered in in that first um three small book series exactly yeah well sorry for stealing yours actually not really (laughs) too late you're forgiven oh thank you but i think we should go into our takeaways then so what are your what are you taking away just on this last conversation it it reminded me of a interaction i had with one of my professors this week where there was going to be an event focused around the election and uh, my professor said that she wasn't sure if she was going to attend because it might just be too stressful. And so she might just watch Avatar with her kids instead. <laughs> um, Good choice. And Yeah. And I was like, you know, that is a, uh, a a way, a much better representation of imperialism and resistance than than our society has. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think that, that our, a lot of our conversations here kind of show why that's the case, where even though Avatar doesn't necessarily do everything perfectly, 
mm-hmm. and there's all these questions that we still want to be answered, there is so much depth to the way that characters and communities interact and and the way that people make choices and are affected by their histories and their cultures and their their parents and the people around them and the villains in particular these antagonists who represent all these different things you know different ideologies and destructive systems they are compelling and they are nuanced and fleshed out in these really interesting ways that just show great lessons and accessible ways to children. Going back to to when you were talking about Admiral Zhao, when it was when I first thought, oh yeah, he's a great introductory villain for the first season of his three season arc because he is doing all this introduction of who he is, but also who the Fire Nation that he represents is. They then are able to build on with future villains in Azula and Ozai, and it's just it, these these are good shows. I like them. <laughs> What about you? What's your takeaway? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, you know, as we were talking about there's there's so many villains with so much pride in both of these series, but I guess my takeaway is kind of that maybe Amon is a bit of an antidote to that hmm. where he's trying to do the opposite. He wants to take away bending and mm-hmm with that would take away the pride that people would have in bending and being benders and in some ways take away some of some nationalistic pride as well because the narratives of these different nations are so saturated with ideas of bending and and the people that are talked about are benders you know and so i don't know it'll be interesting yeah if i watch that first season of legend of Korra again to kind of think about like how amon interacts with pride Mm -hmm. and what he is trying to do versus what a lot of the other villains in the series are trying to do Whereas all of the other villains seem to want to be on top. They want to be the best. They want their band of people or their nation to be the one that's in power. He actually was the opposite of that. He's like, I've seen how much damage this is. Let's take Mm. it all away and make it so everybody's on equal ground. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that will wrap up our conversation on Avatar. So what will we be discussing next week? So next week, we are going to return to Star Wars. And we are going to be looking at the movies through the theme of order. Okay, order in Star Wars. That'll be next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media or go to our website through the links in our episode description. You can also join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.